time. In Colossians 1, 15 to 20, Paul has been rejoicing in Christ on a very large scale. He created all things in heaven and on earth, and he is reconciling to himself all things in heaven and on earth. As we discussed last week, the original creation stood in need of reconciliation because it had been cursed by God after Adam's sin. But, but what does this have to do with the Colossians? What does this have to do with the Colossians? It can be easy when thinking about things on a huge, grand scale to lose the relevance to yourself or to your community. Paul now takes the conclusion of his hymn this large scale, and he points it directly at the Colossians. What does Christ and his cosmic reconciliation have to do with them? We ask the same questions. What does it have to do with us? And the answer is, it has everything to do with them. It has everything to do with us. Because just as Christ reconciles all things, so also Christ has reconciled you. This is what he does. Christ created all things. Christ is the beginning of the new creation. Christ is going to bring about the entirety of the new creation, which is called reconciliation in verse 20. Then he jumps right in here, a text this morning, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Christ has reconciled you, Paul writes. And today I want to break this passage down into five responses regarding your reconciliation. As we think about your reconciliation, as we hear from Paul about your reconciliation, not just the cosmic reconciliation, but your reconciliation, our reconciliation, this is how we should respond to this from this passage. First, we admit the need for your reconciliation. We appreciate the cost of your reconciliation. We anticipate the goal of your reconciliation, adhere to the condition of your reconciliation, and announce the message of your reconciliation. You don't need to have gotten all those. We're going to go through one by one. But we start off with this admitting the need for a reconciliation. This is where Paul uh, first draws their attention to. What were we like before Christ intervened for us is where he starts. Where he starts, we were those who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We think about the need for a reconciliation. We're thinking about our sinfulness and what did that look like? Well, it looked like the fact that we were alienated from God. Alienated does not mean that we were from another planet. It means that we were estranged from God, far away from him. Sin separates humanity from God, like how Adam and Eve's sin caused them to be expelled from the Garden of Eden, and they no longer daily walked or fellowshiped with God. All of humanity is separated from God by sin. But then Paul seems to intensify that 
in his description of them with this term that they are hostile in mind. Not only were you distant from him, but you hated him. You thought of him as your enemy and made yourself his enemy. This is reminding us that sin is not external to us. It has infected us to the core of our being. And people might scoff. I'd be like, I don't, I don't hate God. I just kind of want him to stay in his place and let me stay in my place. And then which we could respond, he owns your place. You're in his place. And you'd say, oh, I don't, I don't hate God. Great, then follow his laws. Well, I don't want him to tell me what to do in this area, that area of my life. Okay, then you're opposed to him and he demands that you follow him. Well, what right does he have to do with that? That kind of makes me a little bit upset. Thank you for proving my point, right? Our enmity, our estrangement from God, our enmity against him is not just like this uh, neighborly disagreement. It is hostility. And it's not external to us. It has infected us to the core of our being. Hostile in mind. This speaks of our sinful disposition that we are born with, a bent toward hostility against God. We are not innocently ignorant of God, and we're not even just estranged from him. When we are born, we naturally hate God as our enemy because we are sinners. And this hostility in mind toward God cannot stay hidden. Uh, hostility rarely can. All right, reading, a, reading a story about uh, oh, a bronze bow. Some of you are reading that right now. Uh, about a first century Jewish young man who living under Roman oppression. And he's very zealous in his hatred for all things Roman. And he has a hard time when trying to live um, peaceably in uh, a first century Galilean city. He has a hard time coming across a Roman and not letting his hostility show. He wants to kill them right there. Uh, he, he wants to say things to them that he doesn't say, but he can't hide the hostility in his expression, right? Hostility in our hearts always reveals itself, and our hostility toward God does the same thing. It can't stay hidden. It must and will show itself. I would actually say it wants to show itself, and it does so through evil deeds. We are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, breaking God's commands, ignoring his instructions, transgressing his rules, trespassing across his boundaries. The scripture uses all sorts of terms like this to describe our sin. It is important to recognize that we are not declared sinners because we do evil deeds as if we started off innocent. We want to assume innocence and ignorance, and God in his word allows neither of those things. That which can be known about God plainly revealed to them, to us, to all of humanity. We're not ignorant and we're not innocent. We do evil deeds because we are hostile sinners. Our sinful actions show who and what we are. Like Jesus said, a good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. And if the tree is changed, the fruit is changed. Our bad fruit, evil deeds, shows the rot in our roots because we are sinners. 
This verse is a disheartening concession that paints a very bleak picture of both the Colossians' former lives and the lives of the rest of the human race, Jews and Gentiles, all under sin. As sinners, we deserve God's wrath. This isn't stated in here, but the the need for reconciliation we can clearly see shows the enmity that we have towards God and God's wrath, really his enmity toward us. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and the wages of that sin is death. God would be just and right to condemn all of us and cast us into hell. That is what we deserve. That is where we were headed. A very bleak picture. Five years ago, five years ago, on Easter Sunday afternoon, my stomach started feeling a little bit sick. Get up early on Easter, so I just thought it was the some response to an adrenaline drive. I wanted to make sure sunrise service, which you won't do anymore, and all those different things happened, and getting to the commons, getting it ready. A week later, I was on vacation in the hospital, recovering from a burst appendix. It wasn't just Sunday jitters. Uh, Receiving regular CT scans to see what was going on inside my guts. Technical term. Those scans revealed nodules on my lungs that my new lung doctor assured me were probably nothing. Or they were stage four lung cancer. There's a big difference between door number one and door number two. Uh, Just to be safe, in early August, I was scheduled for surgery to deflate my lung and get a sample for biopsy. But not to worry, the recovery was guaranteed to be very unpleasant. Kristen Little came over to watch the girls. Uh, Leanne and I headed very early to the hospital. During the few hours of waiting for the surgery, I had yet another CT scan to provide some fresh data. Then I laid down on the gurney. I handed Leanne my ring, my watch, my glasses, as a nurse, for some reason, struggled to insert my IV line. And finally, the surgeon came out to talk to us before they wheeled me in. I'll never forget what he said. I don't think you'll ever forget what he said. He says, well, I've got some bad news and some good news. Okay? Bad news is you wasted your morning at the hospital, but the good news is uh, you're going home. You're not having surgery. The CT scan showed the nodules are gone. I've got nothing to take a sample of. You were in danger. But now you are well and headed home. A radical change of circumstances that can happen in a moment. But now. Paul loves this phrase. Paul loves this idea. You read the New Testament, you'll see Paul, he has a favorite conjunction and this man loves his conjunctions. He loves the conjunction, but... He loves to set his readers up in one direction, truth, true direction, and then abruptly shift his focus to the gospel. Like in Ephesians chapter 2, you were separated from Christ, having no hope. You were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You just write reconciliation over that passage. It's the same thing that he's talking about here in Colossians. In verse 22, but now, you'd be like, where's the but? It's there. The ESV just didn't put it in there. You can trust me on this or we can have a little Greek lesson afterward, but it's there. But now, there has been a radical change in your circumstances. 
And it's clearly because of God's merciful intervention. It doesn't say, you were once evil, it does say that, but now you have changed your ways and cleaned up your behavior, good job. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, you were once evil, but now you have become religious. The good news of the gospel is not, but now you. The good news of the gospel is, but now he. Otherwise, it would say, you were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, but now you have reconciled yourself to God. It does not say that. It cannot say that. That's not possible. It says, but now he has reconciled you. The divine initiative, the divine action, God intervened in our need. Jesus said that this was what what he came for. It wasn't the healthy who needed a doctor, but the sick. He didn't come to save the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. So will you admit the need for your reconciliation? And this is not written to unbelievers. It's necessary for unbelievers. This whole passage is written to those who, who have received reconciliation. Continue to admit your need for reconciliation because Christ has reconciled you. Next, we have appreciating the, appreciate the cost of your reconciliation. Having reminded us of our need for reconciliation, Paul now addresses its cost. We already established that as sinners, we deserve God's wrath and punishment. And the mercy that it's introduced in verse 22 that brings about our reconciliation, that mercy may be free, but it wasn't cheap. It was paid for in full by Christ's body of flesh by his death. He has reconciled you, verse 22, in his body of flesh by his death. Verse 21, Paul reminded us that in our sin, we were hostile in mind toward God. But what he doesn't directly emphasize, but it is equally true, and it is definitely implied, is that God was also hostile toward us in our sin. God is hostile at enmity, at war, angry, wrathful against sinners, which is all of humanity who have not been reconciled to him. Because of our sin against him, God was our enemy. But now, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in verse 20, God was pleased for Christ to reconcile all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. And that is echoed here when Paul says that he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. In his body of flesh definitely emphasizes the incarnation. He uses body. He's talked about the body, which is the church before, in kind of a metaphor sort of sense. Uh, right? We are his body. He wants to make clear that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about his body, like the body that you have, the body of flesh, right? The true human nature that Jesus had. Uh, This is the incarnation where God the Son became truly human in the person of Jesus Christ. And because he had a human nature, it was possible for Jesus to die. And that's exactly what he did. Reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. His death, Christ's death, is the cost of 
of our reconciliation. For God to show mercy, still maintain his perfect righteousness and justice, the punishment that our sins deserved could not be ignored. Justin highlighted that this morning, right? It's never just a brush it to the side. All sin must be dealt with. All sin will be dealt with on the cross or in the lake of fire. Only two options. Christ satisfied God's wrath or it remains and really will eternally be unsatisfied for those who continue to reject the offer of the gospel. On the cross, God took his righteous anger against us and he turned it against Jesus. By punishing Christ on the cross in our place, God removed the grounds or the reason for his enmity against us. Like we have no cause for our enmity against God. Right? There's nothing that he has done that causes our hostility toward him. That's a bent of our twisted sinful nature. But God has every reason to be angry at us for our sin. He has every reason on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. By, by, from Adam's sin on, God has every reason to be angry with sinful humanity and must act according to that. But for those who trust in Christ, he did act, and he acted 2,000 years ago when he poured his wrath out on Jesus, the wrath that your sins deserve, that my sins deserve. And then, how satisfied was it? The grounds, the reason for God's hostility toward us is removed. There is no barrier to mercy Mercifully, the barrier was removed. Grace flows in and we can be brought near to God. This is what Christ accomplished on the cross for us. And with no unaddressed reason for anger remaining, God could reconcile us to himself. Have you considered the cost of your reconciliation in order to appreciate it? We can never (coughs) consider it enough. We can never appreciate it enough. Right? But we must grow in this. Consider the fact that God the Father laid on his one and only dearly loved son the guilt of your sin and then punished him for it. You considered that he poured out his wrath on his son so that he could save you. That he was angry at him so that he could be merciful toward you. Jesus suffered as one who was alienated from the Father and even hostile toward him, even though he had never been alienated from the Father. He had never been hostile in mind. He had never done a single evil deed. Yet he was treated as if all of our sin was his. This this cost, it is unfathomable. Cost, it is priceless. Uh, We throw around words like that, don't we? This thing's priceless. This, this was priceless. This thing was awesome. We use all these big words for small things. This was priceless. Just, I can't think of big enough words. We don't get it. Uh, we'll spend eternity not getting it all the way. We'll get it more and more, I think, forever. And ceaselessly praise him for the cost that he paid on the cross for our behalf. There is nothing of higher worth in heaven and on earth than the person of Jesus. Isn't that what he's just spent, what, five, six verses emphasizing? 
creator of all things, firstborn over everything, everything old, everything new, the beginning of the new, the one who brings all things under himself, the one who deserves all glory. He is the one who's preeminent over everything. So it's like whatever it is, including you, including me, you are, you're not worth more than Jesus. And yet he laid down his life. He suffered in our place, the cost unimaginable. And he did this willingly to reconcile you. You. Like there's a y'all of it, but there's a, there's a you of it. Christ has reconciled you in his body of flesh through his death on the cross. Do you, do you appreciate the cost of your reconciliation? Do so, because Christ has reconciled you. And we, then we anticipate the goal. I want you to anticipate the goal of your reconciliation. This is the second part of verse 22. If needy sinners like us are the, are the who of reconciliation and Christ's death is the how of our reconciliation, this point is the why of our reconciliation. Why has Christ reconciled you? What is the goal that he's aiming at? And Paul says that he has now reconciled you in order for this reason, toward this goal, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. When we think of of holy, we ought to think of the distinction of things that are set apart for God and the worship of God, not common or ordinary, but, but special, right? Set apart for the worship of God. Uh, holiness involves, in some sense, being dedicated or consecrated to the service of God. Blameless means, you know, no accusation of sin can stick, in a sense. It also refers to something that is without blemish or imperfection, without fault. Moral uprightness, perhaps we could translate this. And there's some overlap between this and the the next term that's translated above reproach. You know, again, it's like no criticism of unrepented of sin can be made. Holy, blameless, above reproach. These terms encompass God's goal in reconciling us to himself. But when is that goal reached? I think that's really important for us to be able to understand this. This is the goal of Christ reconciling us to himself, the, the goal, the end for which he died for us. And so we need to understand exactly what Paul is pointing us to. I see three potential options here, and, and actually, spoiler, I think they kind of build on each other. So that's um, why so I'm going through all three options. Perhaps present you before him. In verse 22, means our position before God in justification. Because of Christ's death on the cross, his perfect righteousness is available to all who will trust him. By faith in Christ, we are justified, which means God declares us like a verdict. A judge declares us to be righteous. That's a powerful hammer, right? Most powerful hammer, not necessarily Thor's imaginary hammer or whatever, but the gavel of a judge declaring to be true that which was not true before he spoke. And God, as the ultimate judge, declares those who trust in Christ to be righteous at that moment. Not that you will be righteous, but that by faith you are righteous now. 
If you believe on Jesus for your salvation or your reconciliation, how does God see you as you are presented before him? You are covered by the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So he sees you as holy and blameless and above reproach, sinlessly perfect because Jesus was perfect in your place. Now here's the thing. According to the gospel, That is definitely true, but is it what Paul's emphasizing here? Maybe. Holy and blameless are terms that can also remind us of the criteria of sacrifices that are offered to God. I mean, if if you're in in Leviticus or Exodus in any of those areas about the type of sacrifices and what that qualifies for, if you're reading in those type of things, then the ideas of holiness, blamelessness, without blemish should be something that's pretty familiar to you from those different passages. So perhaps present you before him means a description of our Christian lives as we, like Romans 12 says, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to him, holy and acceptable before God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So this makes me think of sanctification, God's work in us, in us and through us to progressively transform us inside and out into a reflection of the image of our holy, blameless, above reproach Savior, Jesus Christ. What is true of us in heaven, because of justification, what is true of us already, that in Christ we are holy and blameless and above reproach before God, what is true of us in heaven is now being made true of us on earth. And according to New Testament, uh, new and old, all of it, we are to pursue holiness, holiness without which no one can see the Lord. We are told to be holy as God is holy. I mean, we could think about, we'd be like, oh, what, what is that standard and is that possible? And then we, we remember, I remembered 1 Timothy chapter 3, in order to qualify to lead or serve Christ's church, elders and deacons are to demonstrate lives that are above reproach. Same idea that's communicated here. So this isn't a pipe dream, and it's not absolute perfection. And according to God's word, this sanctifying work is taking place in us. We are growing in holiness. We are pursuing blamelessness. We can, by God's grace, with confession and repentance, and because of sanctification, God's work in us, we can live above reproach. Maybe that's what Paul's emphasizing here. Now, there's a final option, though. Final option is that in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him relates to the coming day when we will stand before God at the final judgment. The New Testament tells us that our lives, our works, our words will be examined. And what will be the result of that examination? What will our works as Christians, as Christians, what will our work as Christians, not to be Christians, as Christians, will those things be revealed to be worthless or will they be revealed to be lasting? We will give an answer to God for our words and our choices, our motivations. Are we living to please him more and more as our father? Do we long for, do we pursue walking worthy of the Lord, walking worthy of Christ our Savior? When your life is done, it'll be done someday. Maybe it's a long time away. Maybe it, maybe it ends today. I don't know. You don't know. I know it's a breath. I know it's short. 
and know that we will answer to God for that which he put in front of us. When your life is done and you stand before your Lord to present your life to him, will there be evidence that you were holy, blameless, and above reproach? Other passages in the New Testament use similar wording of this to speak of our appearing before the Lord in the future. So I think this is probably the most likely option. I want to go through, I, I've like skipped over, just so you guys know, I've skipped over like 20 texts that I wanted to cross-reference already in this sermon, okay? This is the fast version of this. So I think that probably what Paul is saying is that the goal of our reconciliation is that final presentation before the Lord. But we can't lose sight of the other two in order for us to consider that. We don't stand in front of the Lord at the final judgment irrespective or ignoring our justification or our sanctification. Whatever holiness you pursue and achieve in this life will never be perfect holiness. Mentioned that uh, some point within the last two months, I think, in Colossians, maybe it was in uh, Haggai, I don't, I don't remember, remember, but like your best work is not good enough. Not just to not save you, but it's just not good enough for you to offer in gratitude to God. Everything that we have must be sanctified by the blood of Christ. Our, our soul and our work as Christians, right? We never stop needing Jesus. So it's never perfect holiness. So without the, without the holiness of Christ placed on you, transferred to your account, you are utterly unholy. And our best attempts at living blameless are in vain without Christ. Furthermore, what we will be as we enter eternity is the fruit of the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in us. All we can do on our own is sin. That's it. What a resume. What are your strengths and weaknesses? I sin. Like, that's it, without Christ. With Christ, though, it all changes, right? We can only live pleasing to God as he transforms us. Like, do you recognize that's not just like a, that's not just a justification message? It's not just like all that you could do was, was sin and you needed Christ? I'm talking right now. I'm talking me trying to preach this sermon, you trying to listen. Everything that you do, you need Christ. You always have. You always will. What we will be in the future is the result of Christ's reconciling work in us, a work that he began, a work that he is continuing, and a work that he will bring to completion at his second coming. Because he's coming for us. Which is a word of comfort, by the way. Christ is coming back for you. That's not the clean up your room, I'll be up in five minutes, and stomp your way up the stairs, try to give him a little bit more time, just eager to be angry. No, Christ is coming for his people, for his bride. His bride, which... Ephesians says he died to present in terms of holy, blameless, and above reproach. That was one of those 20 texts that I wasn't going to cross-reference. 
When Christ returns for his people, we will be made like him, for we will see him as he is. We will be glorified as he is glorified. Do you fight the sin in you knowing that the battle won't last forever and that victory is certain? That makes a big difference. Right? When you lose sight of the fact that an end is coming, we lose strength to be able to continue. Christ promises there is an end, and the end is victorious, and it's victorious for you, and it's victorious because of him. So fight. Right? That's what he says. Do you, do you desire to grow in obedience as grateful worship for your salvation, knowing that you will meet the Lord Christ that you are serving? It's not a fable. It's not false. You will meet Jesus died for you, who's worthy of your worship, who you are lived, you you were to live striving to be worthy of him in gratitude for that. We're going to meet him. And do do we long for that day? It's so easy to forget that. Days just, just click by, weeks click by, months click by, tasks from morning to night. So easy to not just stop and think, you know what? There's an end to all this. And at the end, I get to meet Jesus. Let's love that appearing. Do you anticipate the goal of your reconciliation? Do so. Anticipate God's goal in your reconciliation because Christ has reconciled you. And point number four is adhere to the condition of your reconciliation. In verse 23, Paul places a condition on the goal of your reconciliation. You will be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach before God if something. Love but, we love that. If can turn our stomachs a little bit though, right? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If you continue means if you stay on course. Other passages speak of the same thing as if you endure, or we could say if you persevere. And we speak of this as the perseverance of the saints. All those who are truly reconciled by God will also be presented before him, before God, as holy, blameless, and above reproach because they will continue in the faith. All those who are truly reconciled will be presented because they will continue in the faith. But that continuing in the faith is the condition that Paul lists here regarding our presentation before the Lord. Some deny this teaching. People just don't like this passage. This passage, other passages like it. They deny the teaching by ignoring the warning, and others like it, claiming, and they claim contrary to Scripture, that nothing that happens in a person's life after they make a profession of faith in Christ has any importance at all. Maybe they don't word it like that, but that's taught. It's taught all over the place. Nothing that you do after you make a profession of faith in Christ matters for your eternity at all, and that is not biblical. Often calling it eternal security, many are deceived into thinking that faith is a one-time event rather than an ongoing posture and relationship before God. 
saying things like, I believed in Christ one time, so I'm going to heaven. Can I just tell you that what you believed five months ago or 50 years ago does not matter as much as what you believe right now. I believed in Jesus is not walking by faith. I trusted in him. Trusted. You hear the d? Past tense. I trusted in him is not enough to save you. Check your verb tense. I believe in Jesus right now. I trust in Christ right now. Ongoing, growing faith in Christ provides security for you. Not a one-time decision that you made, no matter what words you said or how much you meant it. I don't care what the words were. I don't care what the emotions were. I care right now. Do you trust in Jesus? Now! Wrestled with this from bad preachers who shouldn't be in pulpits. I've got two big soapboxes, and this is one of them. Did you mean it? 100% sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt? Did you mean it? Did you pray the right? Did you pray the right words? When did you do it? Did you get it right? Did you get it right? Did you get it right? Where's the gospel in that? No, I don't get anything right, ever. Before anyone. I didn't get my engagement to Leanne. I didn't get my proposal right. You know, by grace, she's still married. I don't get that right. I don't get parenting right. I don't get preaching right. I don't get anything right. You think I'm gonna, I'm gonna get salvation right? Nope. So just for what, like a decade? Pray again, pray again, pray again, try again, mean it more, mean it more, say it right, say it right. Then finally, by God's grace, I don't remember when it was, 14, 15 years old, it was just kind of like, you know this whole like look in the past thing just isn't really working. It's like, do I trust in Jesus right now? That's the question. Do you trust right now? And I have to ask myself that question a lot. Ongoing faith Growing faith, that provides security. Only those who remain in the faith will be presented as acceptable before God. If you abandon your profession of faith in Christ, if you turn from the gospel, if you pursue a lifestyle of unrepentant unholiness, moral blame, and ungodly reproach, if that's the case, then you have no cause for certainty that you have been reconciled to God. That's just, it's just what the text says. But... Here we go, we got back to it. But Paul doesn't expect that of the Colossians. Then I don't expect that of you. Even the way that he words this warning, it's not perfectly clear here, but it's, it's there. The way that he says this, we can compare other warning passages as well that have had a similar thing to this. The way he words this, he word, the way he words this condition demonstrates that Paul had no doubt that his condition would be met. He was absolutely confident that they would indeed persevere in the faith. Why? Well, because verses, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he had heard of their faith in Christ Jesus, their love that they had for all the saints because of the hope laid out for them in heaven. He hadn't even met them, but by reputation, he saw evidence that God was at work in them. He's like, yes, so continue in that. I am confident that you will persevere. I'm confident 
that you will continue in the faith. Why? Because of the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, active in your lives, the sufficiency of Christ. Those things are sufficient for you. That's what you need, and you have it, and it's active as seen in your lives, not by evil deeds, but by fruitful works of righteousness produced in you by the Holy Spirit. So keep doing that. Keep trusting. Car alarms are pointless, aren't they? Aren't car alarms just completely useless? I mean, if a car alarm was going out right now in the parking lot, I don't even think that we would hear it. Now you're all listening. I don't hear one. We had a car, uh, it was a Mercury Sable, given to us, or we bought it from uh, friends at the church we were at in Michigan. Uh, and this stupid thing, we lived in Metro, Metro Detroit, so it was likely that our car was going to get stolen. I mean, it wasn't that bad of a neighborhood. It could happen anywhere. We didn't get broken into there. We did get broken into twice in Charleston. Go figure. Uh, but we had this car, and then all of a sudden, middle of the night, the alarm would go off. Wake up out of bed, rush to it. You know, I don't know what I'm going to do other than just glare at them and tell them to stop, but I was going to tell them to stop. Run outside. Nobody's there. Oh, <laughs> scared them off. Got it. Uh, no, I didn't scare them off. Nobody was there. But don't worry. Hot or cold, night or day, parking lot, driveway, country, city, rain, sleet, snow, dry. It could have been in a desert. It could have been on Mount Everest. That stupid car alarm was going to go off. I just slept with the keys next to my bed. Car would turn off. Kind of like unlock it. Would you please just steal the stupid thing? Uh, we sold it. I don't think that the alarm ever went off for that other person. I disconnected the, yeah, we disconnected the horn. Sitting in Charleston, it's like, whatever. I'm sick of this thing. Car alarms, don't pay attention to those things. Smoke alarms are kind of obnoxious in our house, especially ones that are near the kitchen. Um, it's not a comment on anything, but if we could just be steaming rice, the stupid thing is going to go off. Replace the battery. I did. Replace the smoke alarm. I could. It's still going to go off. Alarms. It's like, come on. Tornado warning things that go off. I would never, I'll, I, if there's a tornado comes through a hurricane, I'm going to die because when the siren goes off, it's just like, is that real or is that their test? Like, what's happening? I don't know. Right? We just ignore all of these different warnings. But if the siren for a house alarm goes off in the middle of the night, I'm not just going to roll over and cover my head with a pillow. Like, at some point, warnings we start to pay attention to, right? We start to listen, you know, this is significant enough, and warnings should be taken seriously. And this passage is a warning to be taken seriously. A fearful warning like this ought to sound like a thunderclap in our souls. And what should people do when they hear a loud crack of thunder? They should run to safety. To shelter, should find a refuge. And that is what the gospel provides for us. So if you hear these warnings and you're like, is that talking about me? What should I do? Talking about you or not talking about you? Run to Christ. Run to Christ. That's the answer to these things. He is our safety and our refuge and our fortress. And that is the very message of the gospel that we are to continue believing in. That we are nothing and have nothing apart from Christ. That Christ is everything. That's always been the gospel and it always is. And just as you believed, you have to continue believing it. It's like nothing changes from that. It's just the same message that you have to continue to believe. Continue in the faith. And we, 
We endure. We continue. Endure. We'll make up some words here. Endure. Uh, severe. That's what we're supposed to do. We we continue. We endure. We persevere by being stable and steadfast. He says here. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. To be stable is to be established, to be built on a rock rather than on sand, having the firm and right foundation, which is Christ, the truth of the gospel found in his word. Our lives, our faith, to be built on that. To be steadfast is to have your life firmly built on that foundation and continue to be there, to be unshakable in your allegiance to Christ, to remain unshifting in your trust that he is your savior. These are the type of things that should be our goals. That's that what, we are, what we are pursuing, what we long for our lives to be. And finally, we... Can, we uh, Continue by not shifting. and uh, So he gives two positives and a negative, right? Be stable, be steadfast, don't shift. Don't shift from what? Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. I don't know that I paid attention to hope as much as I did when we started going through Colossians chapter 1, that their faith and their love were motivated by gospel hope. Right? They had the end in mind and responded in faith and faithfulness and responded in love for other people because this wasn't all there is. Fueled by gospel-motivated hope. We see Paul here continuing, or calling them to continue to fix their gaze on that which had been promised to them. Continue. Continue is such a great word for this. Continue. That's what he uses to encompass the condition of perseverance. Do you want to persevere? It's rhetorical, but hopefully you're saying yes. Do you want to persevere? Then it really is as simple as this. Continue trusting in Christ. Don't stop believing him. Keep your faith in Jesus. Battle unbelief. Okay, because there's that piece of it. If it it were natural to us, would Paul be telling us to do it? If we were never going to to come across a temptation that would shift us, a a temptation, a trial that would make us, that would test our stability, that would test our steadfastness, if there were never going to be any winds or storms that would come across it, then, then we wouldn't need to worry about it. So this presupposes that this is not just going to come naturally and easy, but that there will be difficulty to which we must respond by continuing in the faith. Why do I say that? Because I don't want you to feel abnormal or spiritually freakish or unchristian because you doubt or because you struggle, because you're tempted to not continue, because you question the foundation, right? Like, why tell them to continue in the faith if it was just assumed and natural that they would? They need to be called back to that. You need to be called back to it. I need to be called back from that. Because I doubt. Dark seasons in my soul, emptiness and weakness and tired and trials and temptations and things that come, just kind of like, is this this real? Now, for me, a lot of times, it's it's very little. Is this true? So I kind of studied enough that I'm like, yep, everything in here is true, but is it mine? That's where my unbelief comes in. Have I missed something? Maybe it's that latent, did I pray it right, that I heard for so many years. Battle unbelief. Battle it. 
Don't let unbelief win. It's going to come. If it hasn't already, it will. It'll come in a variety of different forms. And battle it every time that it comes. Fight it. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the gospel often. Remind yourself often that you need Christ. Remind yourself of the cost that he paid for you. Remind yourself of the transformation that he promises. Renew your faith. Get resaved? No, doesn't work like that. Not necessary. But renewing your faith on a weekly basis by continuing to come to the gathering, singing the gospel, uh, tasting of the gospel, witnessing the gospel in lives, hearing the gospel preached, good, do that. Renew your faith, your commitment to Christ. Renew that. Yes, I believe. I believe today. I believe today. I believe this week. Yes, let's go forth. But more than that, you need to renew your faith daily. You need to renew your faith hourly, every minute, every moment if necessary. And I need this. And I'm trying to practice this every morning to just be like, yep, still a sinner. Yep, Jesus is still sufficient. And yes, because of faith in him, I am forgiven, even though I don't deserve it. I'm, really, I'm trying to say that to myself every single morning. And it's not just like novel, right? It's like, oh, I, I figured something out. Like how many times have been to preach the gospel to yourself every day? How many times do we hear that? But do you do it? Why are you so cast down? Hope in God. Being a Christian is not admitting that you needed Jesus' help that one time. The Christian life involves learning to embrace our unending, helpless dependence on Christ for everything. You weren't enough. You aren't enough. You won't be enough. Christ is enough. What Jesus said was true, of course. Without him, we can do nothing. And what he said was also true, that I can do all things, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. All things, including continuing in the faith through storms of unbelief. So will you adhere to the condition of your reconciliation? Will you continue to trust in Jesus? Do so, because Christ has reconciled you. Finally, and briefly, announce the message of your reconciliation. Paul reminds them another, another way. This is not a new message. This is not a new method. They've already heard all of this. They just need to continue walking in it. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard. He, they heard it from Epaphras. They learned it from, from him. There's others that they learned it from. A man named Archippus that we'll see in uh, seven years when we finish chapter 4 of Colossians and other servants of Christ that had come. And this was not a local phenomenon either, that the gospel had only come and had transformed them. Paul says this gospel that you heard is a gospel that has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. When you look at this passage, you might scratch your head a little bit. Every nation, every continent, every people group had not heard the gospel at this point, at the writing of Colossians. That still remains the case to this day, 2,000 years later. So we pray, Lord of the harvest, send us forth as laborers to our unreached neighbors and the unreached nations of the earth, as it's not done. Every nation then and now, they had not yet heard, but the gospel was making inroads across the whole Roman Empire. So maybe Paul's just using hyperbole here. He's, he's exaggerating for effect. It's okay. Right? All of creation, every creature has heard this gospel. Maybe he's using hyperbole, or maybe... 
Maybe he's reminding us that Christ's victory and his salvation of sinners and the cosmic reconciliation that was coming with him had echoed across the universe and into the heavenly places. Like, we only think about our little place. It's like, you, you want to limit the proclamation of the gospel only to the Roman Empire in the first century? It's like, that's not big enough. That's not good enough. This has echoed across the cosmos and into the heavenly places. So maybe cursed planets and stars and whales and redwood trees were groaning a little less since Christ's resurrection. Maybe the rejoicing of angels was even louder because of his victory, and the trembling of demons was even more because of their inevitable defeat. Because the gospel that brings cosmic reconciliation has been cosmically proclaimed all of creation. Paul was a minister. He was a servant of this gospel message that had transformed him. You heard it. It's proclaimed everywhere. And that gospel is the one of which I, Paul, became a minister, a servant. He had handed his life over to Christ to be used in spreading its message and proclaiming his glorious reconciliation. You know, we aren't all vocational itinerant preachers like Paul. I don't think any of us actually are vocational itinerant preachers like Paul. But we must all be servants of the gospel. We must speak it to ourselves. We must share it with our families and our neighbors. We must proclaim it to other nations and unreached peoples. So will you announce the message of your reconciliation because Christ has reconciled you and he will reconcile them as well. One other passage joins so well with this one. I want to conclude with it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This, this is another passage. It has reconciliation stamped across it and, and it even says it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. For Christ, God making his appeal, his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you have reconciled us. I know that your grace is sufficient to save us and to keep us from stumbling and to continue in our faith as we eagerly wait for your appearing. May each person here come to faith in Christ and continue with Christ by faith for your eternal glory. This is my prayer.